Hey guys, we're JC and Jess, and this is Pray For Us, a podcast about practicing an ancient religion in the modern day. We're talking about how we observe Judaism when it comes to holidays, relationships, food, and everything in between. Today, we're talking to Rabbi Alex Kress. making Jewish life fun, meaningful, and sacred. Love that. Thanks for reading my website. We do our research. (laughs) (laughs) Have to do research. (laughs) So thanks for being here. We're so excited to have you. It's so great to be here. Yay. We decided we just had a conversation. We're going to call you Rabbi Kress, but we might slip up. It's cool. Rabbi Rabbi Alex, Alex, here and there. Just a rabbi. We'll see what happens. All's okay. (laughs) Just a rabbi. (laughs) So, you know, it's funny. That's actually my preference. Just, just rabbi. a rabbi. Just oh, like yeah. I have a relationship just with like you. And just call me a rabbi. Maybe we will do just rabbi then. Okay. okay I'm glad we sorted <laughs> through that. Um, so you are a millennial rabbi. How does that differ from any other type of rabbi? I think being a millennial rabbi is just that we're the youngest that can be rabbis right now. <laughs> okay. um, so we have a, a, a fresh viewpoint on where Judaism is, where it's going. I think primarily millennial rabbis actually in the past few years it's changed with the uptick in anti-semitism but in general we're really passionate about not viewing judaism through the lens of persecution we're really interested in viewing judaism through the lens of joy and celebration and ritual and all of the good stuff instead of kind of this negative lens and as soon as i was ordained charlottesville happened and I was yeah. forced to kind of hop up on the bima and give a drosh about white supremacists. And it was a surreal moment for me that like kind of shook me. Um, and I had to reset. And I think now I have a much more grounded sense of like what it means to be a millennial rabbi with post um, that experience where it's not just such this joyful thing. Like there is a lot of weight behind what we do and um, the tradition we carry on. But I think more than anything, we don't hold any old dogmas and we're really interested in innovating and trying new things and bringing new music and prayers. And um, for me, that's really what being a millennial rabbi is all about. So you currently are working at Hillel, correct? Yeah. So you have like a younger demographic built in. And they're Gen Z, which is totally fascinating. Yeah, that's even younger than than us. us. We're old ninnies. Do you find that most of them come looking to really be enriched in Judaism and find something to believe in? Or is it mainly kids who are, or, you know, teens who are being sent there by their parents? It's it's a mix. There are certainly kids that are sent there by their parents. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But we, but most of them are there on their own volition and they want to be there and they're looking for community, I think, Mm -hmm. more than anything. And then there's other pieces that they attach to, whether that's kind of social justice stuff. There's a thing called um, challah for hunger in which they co- the students come in and, you know, bake challah and then sell it and give that money for to the food insecure. There's um, a lot of Israel groups that people naturally yeah. mm-hmm. um, go towards. Uh, and then there's this whole realm of uh, learning called Jewish Learning Fellowships where the students are paid to go through a 10-week course on something, big life's big questions or 
uh, sex, love, and romance. I'm start. I started one this quarter called uh, Judaism and Hip Hop. Um, Wait, they get paid to take these classes? Two hundred and fifty bucks. Are we too old? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to participate. <laughs> I volunteer. Um, Judaism and hip hop. Tell us more. <laughs> Is it just all about the Beastie Boys? Or? So, um, <laughs> so uh, you know, as a DJ and lifelong hip hop head, I uh, have always been interested at this intersection, mm-hmm. and I've always felt kinship towards mm-hmm. um, the hip hop community, and those things work even better together than I thought they would. So like one example is there's this song, there's this idea in Christianity that God is love, right? It's actually pretty common. And so you find in hip hop, which is predominantly Christian or the artists are predominantly Christian, this idea of God is love. So Common has a song called God is love. BJ, the Chicago kid has a song called Jeremiah slash the world needs more love, et cetera. Ron used to sign off God is love. There you go. You watched Ron's house. Um, and, and, uh, for Judaism, we often think of that. We think of love as non-Jewish, but in the most central prayer, the Shema in our liturgy in morning or or evening, the prayer is surrounded by prayers of love, either Ahavat Olam in the evening or Ahavah Rabbah in the morning, Ahavah being love, Mm -hmm. um, then Shema and then Viahavta and you shall love, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's this essence of the most central thing in our faith, of, in our prayer, is this idea of Shema, of listening, and God being one. Mm-hmm. Um, and surrounding that idea is love. God being one, being surrounded by love, is to me a really powerful theological statement. And, um, and so God is love, by common, <laughs> works really well with this idea of God is central to Judaism as well. That's, That's awesome. So cool. I feel like when I was in college going to Hillel, I was strictly going for the food. They had like really good hummus. There's a lot of people that strictly come for the yes. food. Yes. And I had I don't no blame work. those people. I relate <laughs> I to them to heavily. I went to try to find a boyfriend and it didn't work, but <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> it's also like the only place you can go when you're a young person. You're like, you're not going to go to a congregation for like high holidays or something. You know what I mean? So you're like, oh, whatever. I'll just go to Hillel. And I still, I've gradu- since graduated, but I still go to Hillel at UCLA, like for high holidays, because you're like, oh, I'll be around young people. It'll be a little more progressive. It's like a nice. Yeah. And Hillel thing. at UCLA is actually for our holidays. They are community events. So Rosh Hashanah and oh, Yom wow. Kippur are open in the community. And it's actually a really interesting vibe of this mix of students and people who are either transient or just don't belong to synagogues like that's not what they do and mm-hmm. so but they want community for the holidays and and Hillel provides that and it's uh, a, a really nice mixture I really it was my first holidays there these past ones and it was great I loved yeah. it it's a good time um I also feel like being a member of a synagogue is so expensive like for a young person it's hard to justify that like do you know why is it so pricey or just even getting tickets to like high holiday services it's like two hundred dollars yeah so i think any i think most people whether you're our age or older 40 50 whatever the price of synagogue membership is people always think it's a lot mm-hmm. um however and people are always hesitant to ask for help or mm-hmm. assistance or whatever but there is no Jewish organization that would turn you away exactly. if asked. Oh. And that's part of the that's part of the challenge is like how do we get young people into the synagogue space? Most synagogues have some type of young membership price. Um, where I'm coming from on Long Island, the young member price, which I think was until you were 
35, it was a thousand dollars a year, which again is is a significant amount of money, but it's not anywhere close to what it costs to actually maintain a synagogue. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's it's a choice, and I think we have to find ways to make it more affordable and act that lower the access point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but when it does come down to it, they're not going to charge you if you can't afford it. And every, I mean, not to be like, I'm so cheap, but every year that I've lived in LA, I've gone to a service for free <laughs> because they ask, they say, you know, can you give $200 for the service? And I say, I really can't yeah, afford no. it this year. And they say, okay, that's fine. You know, we'll circle back next year and then, you know, still can't afford it because I work in entertainment, but like maybe, <laughs> maybe <day>. someday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a dream <laughs> to be able to afford synagogue membership. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like generally feel like a lot of young people are more in touch with their Judaism or are they kind of like confused and lost? I'm not projecting here. I'm just <laughs> asking. like you're projecting. <laughs> I think young people know what's important to them and Judaism sometimes aligns with that and sometimes doesn't or they don't know where it aligns. They yeah. haven't been exposed to that alignment. Um, social justice is the thing that many of us were raised on in the reform movement. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point in life, Judaism isn't needed as a conduit to do social justice. It's nice that our texts encourage us to make the world a better place, but it's not necessary. And I think for me, young people would, myself included, would benefit from the, the structure of Judaism meaning regular rest, mm-hmm. regular yep. reflection on where we are, where what we did over the past week, where we failed and where we succeeded. Um, I think we benefit from being in community, and that means not just our circle of friends, but uh, a circle of friends within a larger community. Um, and, you know, Judaism is, a, is, ba- is, you know, like the original lifestyle fad. It's like... <laughs> it's important to Judaism that you are spiritually healthy and that you are physically healthy and that you are mentally healthy and that there is a communal structure to support you if any of those things fail. And there is not a millennial or young person around that doesn't benefit from those things and thinking about those things and constantly trying to be better. And I think, you know, when we just do one-off kind of Judaism where it's like, oh, that was a cool event, and then you don't think about it again for... Mm -hmm another year, Hmm. um, you lose some of the repetition. It's like working out. Like if you work out once and then three months from now you expect to reap the benefits from that one workout, it just doesn't happen. Going to the shul one day a year isn't really the check-in that you need regularly to actually improve. And I think young people have many ways to check in, um, but Judaism is one of the most profound I've found. And I actually had to be paid to start praying before I realized that. Like I didn't go into rabbinical school as a prayerful person or believing in God. I had to, yeah, not even close. That's crazy. What do you mean you got paid? (laughs) Meaning like when I became a rabbi and I was paid to pray every Shabbat, there was no point in my life until then that I had prayed every Shabbat. Wow. And I'm not even talking about daily prayer. I'm just talking about once a week, twice a week. Um, (laughs) And I realized through being the rabbi of a community and going and praying and leading prayer every week, how profound it is to check in with the same thing every week. Because you don't realize 
the text on a week-to-week basis is mm-hmm. relevant. It takes yeah. many times through to be like, oh, this week I'm really thankful for my body, and this week I'm really thankful for the love of my family and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was not a prayerful person going into rabbinical school. I was not a prayerful person leaving rabbinical school. <laughs> um, and I found it after. Um, kind of in the practice of being a rabbi. And if the bar is that high for a person like me, I understand how high the bar is for other young folks, people like us. Um, But nevertheless, I still encourage people to try it because once you start realizing the power of it, it's it's hard to go away from it. And you really do become a better person. So what were your intentions going into rabbinical school and how did you find yourself there? I loved Judaism going into rabbinical school. Uh, that, w- that was basically what led me there. Okay. Um, I loved community. Pra- it was not about prayer. It was just about loving everything about the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up at Jewish summer camp, oh. um, naturally. I grew I, up doing Jewish youth group, mm-hmm. you know, all that stuff. Ju- uh, youth group president, all that jazz. What youth group were you in? A uh, nifty. Oh, same. See, I was going to say, what camp did you go to? Camp Harlem, represent. <laughs> um, and so I was involved in Jewish life, but, and my rabbi was like, you should be a rabbi. And I thought it was wow. insane. I thought it was like the most crazy idea I'd ever heard. And I studied abroad at Hebrew U my nice. sophomore year, and... When I was finally like just studying Judaism, I really loved that. I didn't like studying all the gen eds that I was forced to take. Like when I was just doing Judaism, I was really into that. And I figured that that would be a cool thing to keep doing, to just study something I love studying. And I was already a people person, so yeah. that part was there. Um, but God and prayer never factored into the decision. It was like <laughs> minor details. Minor details about what I'd be doing every week. Um, it was more about teaching and connecting with people mm-hmm. and just sharing my love and my passion for Judaism with others. Um, and so it's interesting where the journey goes yeah. <laughs> once you're on it and how, you know, spiritually we evolve over time. So, yeah, it's a I think there's a lot of rabbis who come in that way in the liberal movements that are questioning prayer, questioning God. And we have to struggle with those things so that we can help others struggle with those things. There's not an easy answer and there shouldn't no, be. No, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, Even as a rabbi, like, have you felt kind of like an outsider within Judaism or have you always felt a sense of belonging? Hmm. Like since you've become... Since i become a rabbi. Yeah. Uh, there's definitely times where I feel like an outsider. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in Hillel specifically, it's this pluralistic space with... Um, with Orthodox rabbis and all kinds of Jews. And in general, we operate on a what we call the fromest common denominator, which means like, you know, whatever makes the people that are the most observant comfortable is what we do so that mm-hmm. everyone's comfortable. Um, the from is like... From is like are... religious. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, and so it's interesting to be a liberal Jew in that space to not keep kosher, to not care about kosher, really. So you don't keep kosher? Um, I So I'm like a really, I'm a, since I graduated rabbinical school, I've become a really good reformed Jew. Okay. So <laughs> I, I've been playing with things. So 
in the past year, like from this Rosh Hashanah to the Rosh Hashanah before that, I tried keeping kosher. I'm a Philly boy, so I like Uh-oh. was raised on cheesesteaks. Yeah. So that was not fun. But what I actually found was that it didn't work for me. It didn't add meaning to my mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. And I stopped. When I we were living on Long Island at the time, and when we came back out here, I had a cheesesteak before. I was going to say, I, what was the food you know, that made you okay? Cheesesteak, definitely. Um, so you know, for me, Reform Judaism is all about that experimentation, mm-hmm. and most people never do the experimentation; they yeah. choose the path of convenience. There's this great line. I don't know who said it first, but that Judaism isn't supposed to be easy, and we're supposed to wrestle with everything, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like Yisrael means. The people, Am Yisrael means the people that wrestle with God, that like we're constantly wrestling with our tradition and what it means and how we can improve it and how we can improve from it. And so in Reform Judaism, the charge that most people don't take up is to try the things you're interested in or the things that you're getting rid of. Mm -hmm. And I had never tried kashrut in my whole life. My wife keeps kosher and... Um, so we've had a kosher house for a while, mm-hmm. which was an adjustment when it first happened, but it actually isn't all that hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, the adjustment was go- like completely keeping kosher in and out of the house. That was not so easy. Um, and I just didn't like it. And now I just started wearing a kippah. Mm-hmm. I never wore a kippah. I actually was vehemently against wearing kippah really? um, when I started rabbinical school. I mean, like, it's an interesting trajectory from that very beginning of rabbinical school to now um, a lot of maturing and just realizing the value of things mm-hmm. so um so this is like week two of wearing a kippah oh, wow. <laughs> very new, very new. Mazel tov. I, I used <laughs> to wear i used to wear a kippah to differentiate time like if it was shabbat or we were at a shabbat table or something i'd wear a kippah or when i was praying i'd wear a kippah but i wouldn't wear it all the okay. time so now i'm trying so now we're in like another cycle of like see how long this lasts and if i find this meaningful the thing about the kippah is that it marks you as a jew yeah. so anything that you do is noticeable by others as the jew did x y or z mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so it so i am very aware of that that like right. how i act how i talk how mm-hmm. i treat others while i'm wearing a kippah elevates it right so so far that's been actually quite meaningful for me um because I, I'm, I can easily lapse on all of those <laughs> accounts if I'm not. That's the thing about being Jewish is like you can hide your Judaism or you can choose like not to observe like or practice. Like no one's going to know the difference except for your family, obviously, and they'll make you feel guilty about it. But <laughs> if you can get past that, like you can kind of take it or leave it. But also like sometimes I worry like I don't know if I could – I just sometimes get scared about like anti-Semitism and stuff. And I try like not to advertise that I'm Jewish. So I have so much respect for people who are like wearing a tallest, wearing like a kippah or like have chosen like that career path or, you know what I mean? Like totally. I actually, when I first started doing it, it was for the reason I just said. And as I was, and in the past couple of weeks, I've become very aware that in public I'm like marked. Yeah. And it's become a, 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 thing of solidarity for me because as these anti-semitic attacks across the country across the world mm-hmm. are on the rise especially the ones against the hasidic community in brooklyn mm-hmm. that are really violent um i've felt this urge to do something but there's like so little that you can do right. and in a small way wearing a kippa publicly is a act of solidarity in my own uh 
like mind. <laughs> I don't know that anyone else views it that way, but I feel like we have to stand together, especially in a time of heightened anti-Semitism. That it's so important to be visibly Jewish and proud and making others known that that's who we are, and yeah. we're not going to go away, and we're going to keep fighting until it goes away. Yeah, <laughs> that, the, the promised land. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that living here in Los Angeles has made your decision easier to start wearing the kippah? Or, you know, obviously we have a large Jewish community here. Would that be different if you lived in somewhere else that wasn't LA? Probably. Yeah. I think it would be a harder decision. Right. Um, to do the to stand in solidarity. Yeah. I'm not sure that I wouldn't do it, but here is such a safe place in general, mm-hmm. and there's such little of the kind of anti-Semitism that we see elsewhere. Yeah. Um, not that it doesn't exist, but that it, it's it's not as threatening. Exactly. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. So I definitely feel safer here. I also just feel like, you know, when New York is such a big Jewish community that the attacks that are happening there are crazy to me. It's like... I know it's against the Hasidic community. It's against, you know, and, and there's some rub between the communities that live around them and whatever, but the attacks are so vicious that it feels like it could happen here also. Mm -hmm. Um, and that we need to be visibly expressing solidarity with anyone that is feeling the pains of anti-Semitism and, you know, like I said, I, that's not why I started wearing my kippah, but in the process of it's just been two weeks, literally. Yeah. <laughs> but in those two weeks, it, I've become very aware that, like, it feels good to be mm-hmm. visibly Jewish. Like, like it's a like I'm I'm walking higher, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, is your is your family reform? So I come from an interfaith home. Uh, my mom converted. Wow. When I just before my bar mitzvah. Um, but you know, in many ways, my mom and I, and my sister, um, were on the same Jewish learning trajectory throughout like preschool. (laughs) Like my mom didn't really know anything and fell in love with Judaism through like lighting, you know, the Hanukkah during Hanukkah Mm -hmm. and through lighting Shabbat candles at preschool. Um, and she loved that. She loved the community and she fell in love and then was kind of, um, encouraged by a rabbi to take an intro course and in that process decided to convert when my parents got married there's no my dad just said the kids are jewish but i don't care if you convert um that's totally up to you and my mom's like okay (laughs) (laughs) um and so it's been it's almost a normal story at this point that like an interfaith home produces a rabbi (laughs) you know there's so much about interfaith homes being detrimental to the jewish community but i think the flip side is that they are so they're such a uh innovative source of um judaism because or they're they're fresh like they have such a fresh perspective on Mm -hmm. judaism when they come to it that you're like, wow, like you yeah. you mm-hmm. you didn't grow up in this. This is something new to you. And so they bring so much creative energy to a community. Um, not that my mom was that case, but <laughs> <laughs> um, but in my uh, but as a professional, I've found that um, and they just people just love community. And yeah. so when you have, you know, relationships with people, it doesn't 
really matter how what their faith background is they're interested in learning they're interested in spirituality and they're interested in being part of a community and that's mm-hmm. what we do and i even i i know i said this last podcast but i find that when there are couples and um interfaith marriages and relationships when one person is thinking about converting or if they do convert they wind up knowing so much more about the religion than their partner so then they actually wind up it's becoming more quite spiritual a phenomenon together yep which is so beautiful and so cool like my dad converted to judaism um and then i have my best friend in the world her mom converted to judaism and is now orthodox because she fell so, so hard. Hard. head over heels <laughs> <in Judaism. laughs> the whole family's kosher now um and it's just wild to see to see that yeah my my family's similar my dad i think it's common where your jewish development is like like it is arrested when you're 13 and mm-hmm. then stops dead mm-hmm. in its tracks and so my dad has these feelings of what judaism should be or what it was when he was 13 mm-hmm. and and never really revisited them until he had kids and was kind of in the synagogue but then he it was it wasn't his own anymore it was yeah. like for the kids and my mom came to it from such a new a place of curiosity and love that it was really refreshing and so we ended up doing lots of things at her prerogative um and you know it's it's a really beautiful and, and we also blended up with we ended up with blended holidays so we never celebrated christmas in a religious sense but did have it as a, you know, cultural family. No, that's so year. cool. And I so love that. When I love my, that too. When my grandmother passed, my mom's mom, mm-hmm. we stopped doing Christmas because that's that was our gathering place, mm-hmm. and we converted it to Hanukkah. So we now have a big, like Hanukkah morning. Essentially, we converted Christmas morning to Hanukkah morning, and on one of the wherever the weekend falls during Hanukkah, my family gets together and has this kind of like early morning pajama party and presents and coffee. Oh and um, We should do that. We should, everyone should do that. <laughs> it's like the best of both worlds. It's so fun. Um, I love it. So, so I, you know, I think in, that's the kind of creativity that, or it just wouldn't happen yeah. elsewhere. Yeah. And so when you blend traditions and families and rituals, you end up with something really beautiful sometimes. And uh, that certainly happened in our case. And yeah, everyone should do that. It's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm down. Um, so we have a question about these like trendy churches like Hillsong and Mosaic that are comprised of a lot of like younger cool people like Justin Bieber. Selena Gomez. Haley Bieber. Uh, that's all I got. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what are your thoughts on those? And why? Are, is there a Jewish version? Or do you think, you know, there's a path for a Jewish hip synagogue to form? Like, what's your take? This is an interesting <laughs> question. Um, because I'm trying to think in my mind if there's actually a parallel or if there's just kind of cool avant-garde Judaism happening that's distinct from the mosaic um, hip church trend. I think, first off, I think mosaic's great. I think it's wonderful that they have a setup that has reached young people. Yeah. Uh, so first and foremost, like, yeah, sure, like, good job. <laughs> um I think for Judaism, what I've found with young people is a complete aversion to prayer most of the time because they don't believe in God. 
And then the question is, why would we pray if we don't believe in God? And for me, I was one of those people. That's why well until past rabbinical school, mm-hmm. you found me not praying or trying to skirt prayer at every opportunity. I am also one of those people. Uh, so for me, the thing that unlocked prayer for me is modern theology. It was like writings on mm-hmm. that I never knew existed. Basically, all I knew existed was that the Torah said there was a man in the sky that controlled stuff yeah. and mm-hmm. argued with humans. <laughs> and that was so easy to disregard. It was like, that's so childish. Like, wh- of course, there's not a man in the sky. Nobody has ever seen any existence of God. And there's n- cert- And when we pray, we are not, it, there's no direct correlation to what we're praying for and receiving it. So I don't get it. And for me, that was one of the th- immature ideas I had as a young person going into rabbinical school, you know, throughout my adolescence and, and going into rabbinical school. And and what unlocked it was this theology, the idea that God is innate in human relationships. That the only way to reach God is through human relationships. That's a guy named Martin Buber. The idea that God is innate in nature or the existence of the plant of existence, right? Yeah. That's kind of Spinoza or this guy, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, has this idea of living in radical amazement. That's part of my theology. Um, there's just a lot of things that say God. And, you know, I should note that from at least 1500 years ago, the Jewish tradition has lots of voices saying God is not a man in the sky. But for whatever reason, those voices didn't trickle down to me as a child. And so I just disregarded God. In fact, one time at Jewish summer camp, there was a circle like in some Jewish learning and a rabbi went around and said, do you guys believe in God? And we like went went around the whole circle. Yes, no, yes, no. I mean, they were mostly no's. And then the rabbi <laughs> said no. And then just kind of left the conversation at that. And, and in retrospect, I feel like it was such malpractice <laughs> because we could have had a meaningful conversation yeah. about God, what God is and perhaps is not. Mm-hmm. But instead we just were allowed to be like, we don't believe in God. That's okay. that's it. <laughs> and so it took me another 15 years to have a meaningful understanding of God. And that unlocks a lot of things in Judaism that we throw away. It unlocks ritual, which is like the foundational in the daily life of a practicing Jew. Do you light Shabbat candles? Do you say Kiddush to sanctify the time that's about to happen? Do you say Motzi to be grateful for bread? All of those things are entwined in an understanding of God. And if it's just like a thing you do, but you don't have any understanding of God, it loses some of its oomph. And uh, and so that led to meaningful prayer. And, and for me, I think the first sermon I gave when I became a rabbi was basically that more, we, of course, we don't believe in Morgan Freeman as a God, yeah. right? Like it makes, it doesn't make any sense. And I had so many people come up after that and say, I've never heard any of those ideas you just said. And I said, that's a problem. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm happy to be the provider of this information to you. I'm also really sad that you're middle-aged or older and have never heard of alternative ideas of God. So, you know, for me, the idea of young people finding meaning in prayer to me is really rooted in that. I think Christian or, or churches have this a different angle that Jews are, they, they don't have such skeptical yeah. <laughs> folks. Um, we're like questioning everything and poking holes in everything. Why would we even pray if we don't believe in God? And so what I found in terms of 
modern churches are churches that stand for something. So there's one in L.A. called ECAR that has largely built itself around a social justice narrative. Oh, wow. um, and they have a, an amazing rabbi named Rabbi Sharon Browse, and she is phenomenal. She is an incredible teacher of Torah and also a fighter for social justice. And that identity has really provided a spark of mm-hmm. young people wanting to show up and pray and find meaning in prayer. And she's kind of unlocked a lot of, I think, what Mosaic unlocked. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that singing is perhaps the most important element of unlocking prayer for young folks. That like when we all sing together, not when we listen to a cantor sing for us, but when we actually engage in singing and making the music together, that we find a really powerful mode of spirituality. And there are a number of communities. There's another one called Nashuva that's in L.A. Um, that is equally phenomenal in different ways. Um, but I think, you know, all, you guys grew up at, uh, like, normal synagogues, normal reform synagogues, like yeah, a cantor yeah. and a rabbi. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, th- And that's also where I was employed, and, like, I, have lo- I grew up in that also, and lots of love for that. I think our generation wants something new. Exactly, and, yeah. Um, we're working to build it, but it's a slow process. Yeah. You had mentioned mm-hmm. that you were like looking at new music for services and where where is that coming from? Where are we with that? Can we get some samples? <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a mixtape you can send us? Yes. <laughs> I have a few Spotify playlists. Um so most of there is there are a ton of Jewish artists mm-hmm. making really interesting music. The group making the music that I find the most spiritual and prayerful is a group called Nava Tehila. They are out of Jerusalem, um, and they make songs that have infiltrated the the American Jewish world now, um, like everywhere. Uh, cool. And their model is sitting in a circle in the inner circle, meaning many rows of chairs in a circle, and the inner circle is a bunch of musicians. Like every kind of musical instrument you can think of is in that circle, and it's really powerful to sit in that room and just sing together. And perhaps the most powerful thing to me is that most of the music is unknown when we walk in. It's not a set uh, list of songs that happen every time, but it's, you know, five to 20 Hebrew words, Mm And nobody, most of us don't know it the first time it's sung. And then they sing it again and again and again and again. And that's the whole point. And eventually you're like, oh, I kind of know this song now by the time it's over. And it's this really inclusive model of singing together. It starts kind of quiet and slow and slowly it builds together. And as a personal, as a person who never really enjoyed prayer, that sparked something in me. And so I've tried to recreate some of those experiences and uh, friends of mine are creating those experiences throughout the uh, Los Angeles area. And I think you're going to see more and more of that kind of singing together, singing something perhaps you don't know, but we're singing it together so many times that you learn it. Mm -hmm. I hope so. That was always my favorite part. Yeah. (laughs) The best is when there's like a song and you know the words and you're like, oh yeah, like I can jam to this. Like I know this one. What's your favorite temple song? Um, nothing comes to mind okay. at the moment. Well, it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> but I know, like, the Via Hofta. Like, when that the, is not a song. I know, but I'm just saying, like, when we said the Via Hofta, I was like, oh, I know all the words. I got this. 
and I was like really clued in and then I was checked out the rest of services. I was more of like a Lajado D. That's a jam. That's thank you. <laughs> I rest my case. Um we wanted to play a game with you really quickly. Shoot. Okay. It's called Set It Straight. Basically there are a lot of um myths or um questions that we have. This is basically just more questions in a fun <laughs> way. <laughs> and we wanted We're you gonna to call it a game though. To clarify. <laughs> See it's fun this way. Jeez, you wanna go first? This is your question, so. Okay, yeah, fine. <laughs> I, I'll go first. Is it true that Jews are big proponents of drinking? Depends on the level of drinking. So, yes. I thought so. And, like, I feel like red wine is, like, the beverage of choice. Yeah, so wine is used, wine is kind of a symbol of joy, and we use it to, to separate, time, like, mundane time from sacred time. So on a Friday night, if you don't have wine, mm-hmm. you can't really do that. Um <laughs> So, yeah, wine's important. And then on Purim, you know, we get, get sloshed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I need to start celebrating Purim. Purim is the reason we started this podcast, for the record. We'll yeah. talk about that offline. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Is it true that there are more holidays in Judaism than any other religion? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> but I'm not sure if any other religion has a has Shabbat every week, has something every week. Yeah. So mm-hmm. like having something every week of the year is a really powerful and overwhelming sometimes mm-hmm. element of Judaism in addition to all the other awesome stuff we do. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised, but I've never, I can't check that out. Google <laughs> probably knows, so we'll check later. Okay, this is my question. I'll take full responsibility. Um, <laughs> is it true that the Torah is boring or is there some good stuff in there? <laughs> I mean, no offense. (laughs) There's great stuff in there. Yeah. But there's a lot of boring stuff in there. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that you learn to find meaning in some of the one of the things I enjoy most as a generally curious person is finding meaning where it seems like there's no meaning. (laughs) So like in Leviticus, that's all about temple ritual and stuff that is the driest of dry. Mm -hmm. I took a class in rabbinical school about Leviticus and I my mind was blown at how the systems of the temple worked and how it's actually a, you know, metaphor for the world, how they viewed the world. So there's all kinds of boring stuff, but there's also, when you zoom out sometimes, incredibly powerful things that are still relevant to us today. Yeah. And great stories. Yeah. Yes. They're great there's stories. There's no denying that. Great stories. Great stories. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Old Testament inspired the New Testament, which is like, <laughs> <laughs> true. I mean, sort of. It's <laughs> um, <laughs> like the most ignorant thing I've ever heard. What was your Torah portion? What story? Oh my gosh. I don't remember. What was yours? Noah's Ark. Mine too. Really? Okay, well, that's yeah. to remember. When, when was your bar mitzvah? October 5th, 2002. November 5th, 2005. Okay. Um, is it true that the Jewish population is shrinking? I do not think so. Really? No. Where did you get this myth from? Um, I feel like it's probably something that our grandparents tell us because they want us to marry other Jewish oh, people. Oh, that's... Yeah. I I don't think so. So, you know, we just got over the Jewish population level from pre-Holocaust. Um, so my understanding is that we're growing. Um, wow. That's partly because of Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, it's a big country. And uh, and it's partly because we w- the way that we can what we consider Jewish today is a little wider, I think, than in, in previous generations. So like 
in Reform Judaism, if your father's Jewish, you're counted as Jewish. If you're a secular Jew or a socialist Jew or whatever, it's a very wide tent of how people identify. It's not one f one religious identification because it's bigger than religion. So, you know, there's an idea that Judaism is a civilization and, you know, it has a, a language and a culture and food and, mm -hmm. and many different types of food. Um, and so I've always related to that idea, especially before I had any sense of prayer or God. Like I was like, Judaism is just a religion like that doesn't seem right. So I think, you know, when we open the tent wide and we have the state of Israel and Jewish life in America is really flourishing, like all those myths are you know, you can look at that and be like, this is so negative. Or you can be like, American Jewish life is changing and evolving and innovating yeah. in different ways. And maybe old institutions are failing. Maybe synagogues aren't doing as well. But that doesn't mean that the two of you who don't belong to synagogues aren't proud Jewish adults. Um, yeah, we so. are. Air high five. You know. No, that was a beautiful answer. Yeah, that was amazing. Thank you for joining us, Rabbi Alex. Uh, you can find him on Instagram at, at Alex Cress. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And don't forget to rate and review us. Follow us on Insta at PrayForUsPod. And if you feel like it, you can send us a note at PrayForUsPod at gmail.com. Shalom. Bye. Bye.